Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we are going to dive into Genesis chapter 3. really is a very sad section of Scripture, I think. Uh, you know, for all that comes out of it and the provision that's made and everything like that, it's, it's just truly heartbreaking. And a lot of things have been written regarding this because we're talking about the entrance into the world uh, of sin through Adam and Eve. Uh, we meet Satan who at this point in the scripture is fallen. He has to be fallen to tempt them to do evil. And that gets us into some interesting discussion as to when exactly Satan fell from heaven. And, and we don't know, to be honest. Uh, we don't know. All we can say with certainty is that when we get to the end of chapter 1, and God says it's very good, that can't include Satan falling from heaven and the demons, uh, that group of angels that lock their, their fate in there. And nor can it be included in chapter two because chapter two is just a deep dive into day six. So it has to happen sometime after that. Is it a long time? Probably not. Uh, just very practically speaking, there's not enough time for procreation to happen. God had given the mandate to fill the earth and to uh, multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it. So that, that command had been given. And there was no time for that to actually come to fruition. So all of this must have happened relatively quickly. Let's just put it that way. Uh, it would not have been uh, day ages or anything like that. It would not have been weeks, months, maybe a week or two. It's possible, I suppose. Probably not months, definitely not years, and, uh, and definitely not millions of years either. Now, with regard to literature that has been written on the topic, uh, one of the most famous in English literature would be that by John Milton, who wrote in the 17th century a famous epic poem called Paradise Lost. And it really is about Adam and Eve and their fall into sin. Paradise, of course, being the Garden of Eden. And he writes this incredible poem, but when you boil it down, Milton seems to adopt a ransom theory of atonement near the beginning. When he's talking about the plan of Beelzebub to corrupt God's creation, a task for which Satan gladly volunteers, so he's the lord over Satan, supposedly, he imagines all the nuances of the garden, the fruit, the other angelic beings that could have been present, the conversations that must have taken place to show what possibly could have happened. Milton goes on to say that Satan actually snuck into the garden and that Adam and Eve were otherwise obeying perfectly and that the son volunteered to go to earth to thwart the plans of the fallen angelic host. And, and this was a problem. Of course, uh, what we really need to understand about this is back in the 17th century, that we're talking the 1600s, entertainment uh, was found in the form of books. There was no radios, so we couldn't even go to just radios, and there's definitely no TV and no movies. And if you make that connection in your head, 
it's really of little surprise uh, that we see people taking things like entertainment that's fiction and on topics that we know of, and a lot of movies do this, and then they take a depiction of that, even if it's not biblical, and they run with it. And this ransom theory of atonement then, that somehow Satan has the authority over their souls and Christ's sacrifice was to pay Satan, uh, is just horrific. It's not biblical, but the idea that it has persisted into culture and found its way into some denominations and, and religions is just, it shouldn't be surprising, but it's sad. And we see that because Paradise Lost, this book, this epic poem, was a form of entertainment, especially in that day. And we see this happening today when when some Hollywood actor or actress or whatever makes a movie that's biblically themed and they put millions of dollars into it. And then they throw in all kinds of extra biblical aspects and things that are outside of the Bible and even false teaching into it. Sometimes people are tempted to say, well, I saw it on the silver screen, you know, therefore, and they kind of lose that sense of discernment. I bring up John Milton and Paradise Lost because not only did he do a great deal to perpetuate this idea of the ransom theory of atonement, uh, but it can it continues into this day. Uh, in the modern day, it's even known as something as the atonement as victory over the forces of sin and evil. Millard Erickson writes about this in his systematic theology. It's also known as the classic view of atonement and is indeed one of the oldest false teachings about it. Uh, and it, it long predates uh, Milton. It actually goes all the way back uh, to Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, and further held by such prominent men as Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, you know, for all the good that he did, he wasn't right on some of his doctrines, including this theory of atonement. Uh, the ransom theory was refuted by Anselm and Abelard, uh, and so we we see this in part in scripture. The reason that some people hold this is they look at first Corinthians chapter six, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. Uh, therefore glorify God with your body, right? You were bought with a price. And they say, well, that phrase there is proof of this theory saying that the price had to be paid to someone. And if they would simply look at the preceding context, they would get the answer in part. First uh, Corinthians six nineteen. for you are not your own. Ah, okay. Uh, so it kind of points us to that. Uh, so we're, we're bought by Christ. The denomination of the currency that is being spent is his very blood. And then the question that a lot of people ask is, from whom have we been purchased? And that's actually a wrong question. It's not a question of from whom. It's not a question of identity, uh, but rather the question of what, uh, as far as personhood, right? Who implies a person? What implies a thing? And the question properly asked is, what, from what were we purchased? Being purchased presumes ownership, and we have been bought, and therefore we are owned by, or to put it into New Testament terminology, we are slaves of, bond slaves, the, the Bible does use that terminology. We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ, since he's the one who paid the price. So then we ask the question, well, who was our master before it was Christ? Was it Satan? Well, no, it wasn't. It was actually sin itself. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. All right. Uh, so that gives us a little bit of background into where we're headed with this as we dive into Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but we just want to make sure that the discussion is being framed correctly. And uh, very, very important that we do that. So as we come into this, then uh, we're going to treat Genesis 3 not as an entire unit, but we're going to break it down even further. And we're going to just look at the first seven verses because they stand apart from the rest of of the scripture, uh, the rest of the chapter, I should say. And what they do is they give us a depiction of here's the account of the fall into sin. And then from verse eight on through the end of the chapter, we are told the effects of that, the the consequences of it. Uh, Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor, uh, and he wrote a book called The Mischief of Sin. Very interesting book. And I think it's a very good book as well. And in that book, as he's meditating on the nature of sin, he imagined a comment from the devil. Now, you could almost say this almost sounds like C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters, where Uncle Screwtape, uh, uh, and you know, he's writing, writing letters to his nephew and teaching him about sin. Well, uh, Thomas Watson predated C.S. Lewis, obviously, by a couple hundred years there. Uh, He's imagining a comment from the devil aimed towards Christ. We don't have this recorded anywhere, but here's Satan speaking, and he says this, As for my followers, I never did for them as Christ, or I never died for them as Christ has died for his. I never promised them as great a reward as Christ has done to his. Yet, Satan says, I have greater numbers than he. And my followers venture more for me than his do for him. It really is something when we consider where Satan is and and the role that he has in the world today and what he's been allowed to do. And of course, that's all going to come to an end at the end of things. Uh, But for now, he has quite a bit of power and the role that he occupied in the garden after his fall and the fall of man uh, he has much, he's been playing up to that for some time. And it's really gets you thinking, doesn't it? That Christ died for his followers. Satan did not die for his followers. And yet there's a great number of people that were, are willing to follow Satan and his teaching and happily go along with that. Uh, Christ promised great reward to his followers, but Satan doesn't promise anything. And yet more are willing to follow Satan than they are to follow Christ. Very, very fascinating. Now let's, let's get into this a little bit. What we have to understand as we get to verse one and uh, is that everything that precedes it uh, precedes it is actually a prologue and the setting for sin. And not just everything, not just chapters one and two, but specifically the prologue for sin uh, to take place is this test of faith that's given back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where this is before we have the articulation of how uh, woman was created. And it says here, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to, uh, to work it and to keep it. And he commanded the man saying, 
You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we did talk about that before, but that really is the prologue to this mischief of sin that's going to take place in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3. Uh, We have another command from God here, and this one represents life to the current moment, uh, helps us understand the revelation from beginning to end. How is it that people were saved in the Old Testament? Well, they were saved just as they are in the New Testament. It's always been salvation by faith alone. Now, we now know the object of our faith, and we can name that person and specifically uh, line him up in uh, with descendants and, and lineage to David and the the tribe the nation of Israel, right? And, and we can go to the, the tribe of Judah. We can do all of those things now, uh, but... We, we now have an object to the faith, but anybody who is saved in the Old Testament, and obviously people were, had faith in what God had revealed to them up to that point. Okay, so at this point, when we get to verses 16 and 17, God has said, you may eat of this, of all these trees in the garden, but of this one tree you may not, the tree of good and evil. And he's even given them a reason. All Adam has to do right now is to exercise faith, and the way he exercises faith in this is by following the commandment. That's what they were supposed to do. Does he believe God or not? Now, I think Adam uh, is going to believe God later. Not everybody believes God the very first time, uh, but the, the consequences are devastating. Let's just put it that way. I mean, think about this. When Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, God chooses him to be the leader. You know, he flees Egypt after being raised there by Pharaoh's daughter. You know, for 40 years, he ends up going up to the the desert and herding livestock for a time, uh, for 40 years, actually. And then God appears to him, Exodus chapter 3. He's 80 years old, and then he lives for another 40 years leading the people out. We all know that. God says he's going to lead, use Moses to lead them out and then lead them into the promised land. It wasn't initially supposed to take 40 years, but they disbelieved the word of the spies who went into Canaan and spied out the land. And they said, no, we don't believe it. There's giants there. They're going to kill us. So God says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. You remember all that. And at that point, Moses was still primed and ready to lead the people in until Moses disobeys. God says, okay, the second time that there's a water scarcity, uh, this time instead of hitting the rock like you did the first time, I want you to speak to it. But Moses is angry at the people. So he hits the rock, water comes forward, and God says, well, you didn't believe me, so now you forfeit your opportunity to go into the promised land. I say all that because does that mean that God uh, or that Moses is not saved? Well, (laughs) clearly Moses is saved. Uh, So we can't use this initial disobedience Uh, as evidence that Adam is not saved. Uh, We get record of that uh, later on. And so we we have to just understand that in its broader context. Okay, so verses 16 and 17 then of chapter two serve as a prologue. And we also know as the end of this prologue, the very last verse of chapter two says that they were naked and not ashamed. That indicates that there's no sin. And we ended last episode talking about that. There is no sin yet. Sin is going to require a covering. That's what comes when we put clothes on. Uh, and, And so it's really setting us up. That's all of this serves as a prologue then as we get into the text of scripture. 
So let's just get into this, I guess, with verse one, because we just are probably not going to have time to, to go on beyond this because I'm already long in this introduction. But let's now look as we get into this mischief of sin and see, first of all, in verse one, that we have our adversary identified. Our adversary is identified in verse one and says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat uh, of this? Uh, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, we may not even get to the question that he asks Eve. Uh, and and by the way, we don't even know her name yet. Um, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. But all Adam has said of her so far is that she is woman, for she was made for man. Ish, Isha, remember that discussion. We actually don't know her name yet, and, and she will be given a name later on. But interestingly, we are introduced to the adversary, and he, he is called the serpent. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we, uh, we have a link, a direct link from God through John the Apostle, who's writing in Patmos in exile from the island of Patmos. And he, in his revelation, uh, the, the apocalypse uh, that, that is given to him, is told that Satan is the serpent. So this is Revelation 12, 9. And even when you get into Revelation 20, when Satan is finally bound, he's given a few titles, one of which is the serpent of old, which is a direct link back to this passage. So the Hebrew word for serpent, not Nachash or Nakash. Uh, some maintain that this originally meant a shining or upright creature. This idea is possibly supported uh, by the later curse that happens uh, in verse 14 of this chapter, which obviously we won't be getting to today, that dooms the serpent to crawl on its belly, eating dust, and perhaps also by the structures in the snake's skeleton, which have been interpreted by evolutionists as vestigial uh, limbs or vestigial limbs, which indicate that at one point there were limbs for this creature to be upright. Regardless, uh, we don't need to read too far into that. This is clearly a serpent, as we understand a serpent, may be different than all the families of serpents that we know today. I think most of the, uh, most of the animals that Adam and Eve would have seen in the garden, and even after the fall, uh, they're going to be very different than than the ones we have in the world today because these are going to be the 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 parent animals the the prototype kinds uh, from which all the of their their subspecies and their subkinds uh, are going to descend. So we don't know exactly what kind of snake and and that doesn't really it's not really germane to the conversation. One commentator said, apart from the uniformitarian considerations, there may really be no reason why we should not assume that in the original creation, the serpent was beautiful, an upright animal with the ability to speak and converse with human beings. Such an interpretation would at least make the verses and the passage easier to understand, even though they may make them harder to believe. And again, we have to understand that the world is very different here. Adam has incredible intellect to be able to do the things that he is, that we've already seen him do in chapter two and, and to, to remember all of those things. And that's actually going to play into this uh, as we get further into this passage. Uh, but I think that, you know, he didn't think anything of, or she didn't think anything of an animal that could talk. 
Does that mean that all the other animals in the garden talked? Well, we don't know. It, the scripture just doesn't say. That's something we could ask later on in eternity future, and we could ask about how the world was prior to the fall. Uh, but certainly we see the animal talking here. And then even after the fall, God speaks through animals. Uh, you think of Balaam's donkey, uh, for instance, in, in the book of Numbers. And so uh, we have that going as well. So it's not too much of a stretch, but we have to understand that things were a little bit different here. Now, man has done plenty to distort and corrupt creation since the fall. Uh, but one commentator said this, but before man could bring sin into the world, he must be persuaded to sin by an agent external to himself, since there was as yet nothing within his own nature to lead him in such a direction. So this gets into a really interesting philosophical and theological discussion because, because there is no sin he can't do this of himself because he's not corrupted and tainted by the sin nature, which is shortly going to enter in and then pass to, to everybody since then, because it's actually going to change his nature. So that leads us then to this idea. Not only is Satan identified as a serpent, but we've already nodded to this, that the fall of Satan has already occurred. Now, it may have just happened within an hour of this or a few minutes of this or something, but Satan gets right to work. I mean, it might have happened just moments before, but regardless, Satan has now fallen and now he has made it his goal and objective to take everyone with him. And he's going to start with the image bearers uh, that God has placed on the earth. So much now has actually changed. By the time we get to verse 1, uh, sin is in the world in the form of Satan and his demons. Okay, so now we have moved from very good to something is wrong in the system here. Now, we know this because this is a, recorded for us in passages like Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Uh, and some of them, even though the greater context of Isaiah 14 seem to be talking about a wicked king of Babylon, the, the, the language goes on to talk about somebody who clearly cannot be an earthly king. Just as in Isaiah chapter 9, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, if the context suggests that it's somebody else in that immediate time frame, well, again, that cannot be said of an earthly king, everlasting father, uh, mighty God is not, those are not titles that any king could ever rightfully take to themselves. And the description of this being this star from heaven who has fallen in Isaiah chapter 14 cannot again be just a mere earthly king. So we take this as a record of Satan's fall in that passage. Also Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 to 19 uh, similarly, they're addressed to an earthly potentate, the king of Tyre, who had also been possessed by the way uh, of possessed the way the king of Babylon had in the Isaiah text. Again, probably speaking of Satan there, Isaiah chapter 28 verse 15, or sorry, Ezekiel 28:15 specifically, Satan is said to have been perfect in his ways, which is in accordance with Genesis 1:31. Again, not talking about an earthly king, but about Satan himself. Then in verse 17 of Ezekiel 28, Lucifer's heart was lifted up because of his beauty, 
and he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his brightness. Again, most likely said about Satan and not an earthly king. Then Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verse 14, right there in the middle of that passage we alluded to earlier, uh, Satan says, I will be like the most high. Ezekiel 28, 15, iniquity was found in him. Satan fell in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, uh, as lightning falls from heaven. So it was very quick. Ezekiel 28, 17, uh, we read this, God cast him to the ground. Uh, again, probably talking about Satan and not an earthly person. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15, he will be brought down to hell. Also, Matthew 25, verse 41 corroborates this. Depart from you, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we have uh, just incredible uh, things here that point to the identity of Satan and this little discussion that we have to enter into about his fall, which I think immediately preceded this, and according to the verses we just read, happened incredibly quickly, so that it was very, very fast, probably moments, minutes at most, uh, not going to be a long time, and then now the true test and the fall and all of that is going to come upon us. We'll have to pick this up in the next episode because of time. We have a few other things that we want to talk about with Satan, and then we're going to get into the discussion about why uh, he went to Eve first uh, and, and all of those things as we pick up this text in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.